Good afternoon, everybody. I am very excited uh, to be here today with our fantastic uh, guest. I say fantastic all the time because all our guests are fantastic. This is Gulnar Nikpur, who is an assistant professor at Dartmouth in history. And she is also the co-editor of the Iran page on Jalaliya. So she's sort of an internal uh, informant, if you will. And uh, she will be speaking with us today from Philadelphia. I'm joined by Noura Aliqat, who is uh, my co-host. And this is another episode of Politics in the Name of Corona. Time. Thank you. In, in the name, did I say name again? You did. Okay, so this is politics in the time of Corona. Time, time, time. And uh, welcome, uh, uh, Goldnar. And we are very excited to have you. I'll let Nura lead with the first uh, question, and then we'll go forward with the discussion not only of the situation of Iran, which you will get to, but also of your superb article that you published in Jalalia two days ago. Welcome with us, Goldnar. Thank you so much, uh, Nora and Bassam. I'm so happy to be here. It's a real pleasure to be talking to you both. So we're really we're really keen on getting into the the weeds of your article where you interrogate uh, carceral regimes and how Iran has responded uh, to this particular crisis and what prisons look like and the history of prisons in Iran. Before we do that, is it is incumbent upon us to ask how are you and how are you doing um, during these times? Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, like many others, I'm I'm anxious, scared, uh, and angry. But uh, at a health level, I'm doing okay. Um, most of my you know close people are are all doing okay. You know, doing sort of daily check-ins, making sure that everything's okay. It's for those of us who have loved ones in in multiple countries affected by the virus, we're doing lots of lots of uh, weird time skypes and and that kind of thing. But hanging in there as best we can. That's great to hear. That's great to hear. And I hope you all remain in, in health and wellness. So Yes, same to everybody out there. I hope everyone's doing okay. Thank you. So as I mentioned, you recently published an article on Jadaliya that reflects your um, scholarship and your, you know, your intellectual work on the development of prisons in Iran. I guess we'll begin in the moment of the present before we go backwards in thinking about Right, how this has how the crisis has illuminated what carceral regimes mean in this moment, and specifically beyond security and surveillance and policing, prisons mean in this moment. We've seen that a number of um, the the worst crises have hit um, prisoners, such as at Rikers Island, where now the governor is uh, um, planning on they're going to release a thousand prisoners, but in Iran they're ahead of the curve where 70,000 of 240,000 prisoners have been released temporarily. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. So in the article um, that was published a couple of days ago by Jadalia, that came out of my own, my, my work on prisons and prisoners. Um, I'm writing a book on the history of prisons and prisoners and sort of carceral regimes in modern Iran. But also I'm trying to actually keep up with this deluge of daily information on corona in the Iranian context. So you know, I, I, as we as we know, there, the corona crisis has hit Iran quite hard, uh, as it has uh, very very similar for very similar reasons to why it's hit the United States quite hard. Uh, its leaders were uh, minimizing of the issue at the beginning, um, not really letting out uh, full amounts of information. There was a lack of testing, and Iran, of course, um, also has to deal with the the reality of sanctions, which has limited its ability to get medical uh, medical supplies and. 
And I was trying to find out what was happening in Iran's prisons, because of course, um, following the news in prisons for over, over several years, public health crises in Iran's prisons are not new. There's a lot of public health uh, outcry about the spread of HIV AIDS in prisons, about the spread of Golnar, we uh, stopped hearing you. We must have gotten cut off somehow. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. I'll just I'll dive back in and I'll let your you figure out exactly how to um, go from there. Yeah. So uh, before I was uh, cut off, um, I was saying that there are there are already a lot of sort of um, information about the spread of very very uh, sort of disastrous spread of HIV/AIDS in Iranian prisons, hepatitis C, tuberculosis. This is something that um, public health advocates have been very, very worried about. And so when uh, the coronavirus uh, crisis hit in Iran, I knew that this was going to be a huge disaster in its prisons, which have issues with overcrowding. And that has been an issue in Iranian prisons since the beginning. I mean, from the very beginning of Iran's modern prison system in the 1920s being built up, um, the big problem that it faced is more prisoners than space, right? So it was very clear that coronavirus would cause issues. And then within just a couple of weeks um, after the crisis hit, there started to be conversations about releasing some of the um, some of the incarcerated persons there, um, people who are older, people who are maybe susceptible to illness, and also people on lesser charges or people who haven't been charged yet. In other words, just like in uh, some other contexts, there are people who are in uh, who are incarcerated in Iran who haven't actually been um, uh, who haven't been who are waiting charge or awaiting trial or awaiting various stages of their of their process. So there was conversation about releasing those people, and in fact, the Islamic Republic has absolutely blown away the rest of the field in terms of being really aggressive about trying to um, uh, deal with this. As 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 Nora mentioned. Um, somewhere in the vicinity of between 70 to 85,000 uh, incarcerated persons have been released already. Um, the total numbers are have bounced around a little bit in the last week. So right now, from the best estimate that I've seen, it's about somewhere in the 80,000 vicinity with uh, the Supreme Leader, uh, Ali Khamenei, promising uh, potential more releases down the road. Now, that's close to a third of the total incarcerated persons in Iran. I think uh, the official incarcerated persons. I think there's probably a larger carceral regime than that 240,000 um, gives a sense of, particularly because just, again, the, the borders are policed and that doesn't include some, you know, um, refugee populations who are being incarcerated, particularly Afghans on the, on the eastern border of Iran. But at the same time, that's a huge number, right? Like in New York, and in Pennsylvania, they're fighting prison prisoner rights advocates are fighting to get 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 people released. Um, public health public health um, uh, experts saying that we need much, much bigger, uh, much more expansive releases. Um, at the same time that they're releasing uh, some incarcerated people, though, in the Islamic Republic, there has been any. Uh, we have evidence um, from uh, uh, comments made by the, the head of prisons, uh, Askar Jahangir that they have imposed really uh, very, very limiting new draconian measures on the prisons in terms of visitation rights, mobility rights, uh, and so on and so forth. And it's not totally clear uh, to what extent uh, health and hygiene has really been addressed uh, in a sort of forward-thinking way, right? So of course, all of us are dealing with limitations of mobility, um, but in a, in a carceral space, of course, that's heavily sort of, it's a militarized process, right? So you're being, um, told to do certain things at the barrel of a gun. And visitation rights are already 
um, something that prisoners are, are really punished with when they're not, um, when they don't, for any number of reasons, visitation rights are taken away from folks. So there have been a number of uprisings in, in Iranian provinces, in particular two in Loristan, in small small cities in Loristan, and one in uh, Azerbaijan, Iranian Azerbaijan and Tabriz. Um, and so that was part of the focus of the article as well, trying to get a sense of, okay, we're not actually hearing directly from prisoners, and the government has been extremely tight-lipped about actually letting us know whether or not there have been um, uh, confirmed cases of COVID in its cultural sites. Um, but we do know that prisoners are, are, to some extent, taking matters into their own hands. Um, uh, in two of the, in two of the up, um, revolts, there were escapes. And I think it's quite telling that in the Loristan, in one of the Loristan cases, uh, many of the escapees were people who had only just been arrested in recent weeks and who hadn't um, been, gone through the process of trial yet, right? So there are people who are really fear. You know, that's not typically who organizes a prison uprising, right? If it's only your second, third week in incarceration, that's not typically when you're organizing to like have a prison break. Um, and, and so I think that speaks to the level of fear uh, that people are living with in those spaces, um, in an incredible enclosed and cramped spaces. Um, and in the provinces, those prisons are typically much less well-kept. They have much poorer hygiene, less access to clean water. Um, the one in Aligodags, which was one of the, one of the um, uh, revolts, is one of the sort of most, you know, older, most crumbling um, uh, penal institutions in the country. There's been promises of building a new prison for several years. And, and so I think it's, it's also quite telling that that's where we're seeing the most unrest. So there's a few, I, I think, instinctual questions folks will have in response to what you're sharing with us. So I'm just going to ask both and, and have you respond. The first is, where are these prisoners, you know, there's a policy. They're not being released. This is not that they're out. This is that it's, it's a furlough, right? It's a medical furlough. So where are they being kept um, and, and under what conditions, number one, in, in terms of what we can learn from that. But number two, and more pressing analytically based on your research, what do you think, based on the development of Iran's prison system, uh, prepared the Islamic Republic to make this forward-thinking move at such a high rate, at such a quick speed, a rapid speed? Yeah, so the I'll answer the first part of the question first. Yeah, the, the release is, is a quite a short-term medical furlough. At first, the release um, the, was going to be until about early April, the first week of April. And then just a couple of days ago, um, President Rouhani said that it would be until about mid-April, the medical furlough. So they're slowly kind of trying to move, to, you know, seemingly hearing that, okay, just a couple of weeks is really not going to be enough. Um, and it's, from what we know, the, the, the um, incarcerated folks that we've heard from have largely been those who are on, who are prisoners of conscience or people who have been um, arrested and incarcerated on essentially political crimes, right? And they are, for the most part, they seem to be under house arrest. Uh, they're getting ankle bracelets. So they're still part of that kind of carceral continuum, right? They're not just out and free. Um, but the idea is that they're able to better quarantine um, and keep more social distance, right? And in prison, that's something that you simply can't do. Um, as far as all 80,000 people, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, there haven't been good details about provincial, you know, relatively, you know, of course, this is going to affect people differently, right? Like some people are going to have a home where they can go and be relatively socially isolated and others are not. Um, so, but at the same time, again, it's a kind of more of a, it's a medical furlough and essentially a kind of um, a part of the carceral, as I said, part of the carceral continuum where they're still being basic, they're basically still sort of 
in um, the system um, and they're expected to go back. Um, so as far as the decision though, um, I've been thinking about that quite a lot. You know, how did, you know, because Iran is one of the more heavily carceral states in the world. It has the uh, eighth highest prison population in the world, although a smaller per capita rate than, you know, most of the major powers, the U.S. Than, not higher than the U.S., <laughs> just to make no, sure. No, 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 absolutely not. Nobody right is. Now, nobody is. <laughs> no, nobody is. U.S. is, not only is the U.S. number one, but they're like, they're number one like three or four times over. Um, but... I think there's two parts of it. Um, one is that there has all there's um, a history of of a longer standing history of medical furlough in in um, Iranian in the Iranian case with other issues with other public health issues, and so it's something that actually public health advocates have advocated for successfully in the past. Um, so this wasn't a first, which is not the has not nearly as much been the case in some other contexts. Um, so this wasn't a there was already an infrastructure. Um, in place in which they could, okay, release a bunch of people and still have them relatively surveilled, right? So part of that is an infrastructural issue. Um, and the other is, um, again, that I think the Iranian case, uh, although especially um, drug users and people on minor drug offenses are incarcerated at extremely high rates, um, I don't think that there is, there's the, the penal system has included all sorts of different components of the carceral continuum. So internal exile, sending someone to a far off place, um, exiling them to a different kind of carceral space, um, imp uh, imprisonment, home arrest. These are all parts of the sort of structure of how the carceral system works there. And I think that that um, broader mechanism allows for something like this, which is a good, which is a welcome thing. It's welcome that they allowed 80,000 people to go to home even for a short time. Um, as far as the, you know, I, in a comparative model, too, I think that there is just, uh, I was trying to think what would happen um, if 80,000 people were released en masse in the U.S. context, or, or, or the, the sort of per capita, a third of the penal population was released en masse. I think you would see an enormous amount of sort of uh, media antagonism towards that decision. Um, whereas in the Iranian context, I think that there, of course, you know, the media is just going to be the the Iranian media is just the state media, but in the Iranian context, I, I don't think that you have that same kind of antagonism towards the idea of releasing large numbers of people. It seems like there has been a fairly positive response to their to their decisions. Um, so I think all of that kind of comes into play because the way that carceration is criticized in the U.S. and the way that it's racialized um, is, is quite particular um, and leads to a real sort of antagonism towards um, incarcerated folks. So I have... Um... Two more questions. Uh, I have actually many more, but we're going to limit it. I'm going to limit it to two. Um, one is about, uh, let, let's focus on Iran and then go back to the global, because you were doing both right now, right? So I want to focus a little bit more on Iran before you take us. And this is all from your fantastic article. So on Iran, you have this great um, line that helps us think about it in a comparative context. That whereas in the early 1980s, it was um, the Reagan um, administration that basically pledged a war on crime that w the, uh, based on these very overt racial um, tropes um, that expanded our prison population exponentially. In Iran, it was based on right after the Islamic Revolution, based on a policy of wanting to stamp out vice and sin. So can you tell us a little bit more about how you, how you think about those things um, 
uh, alongside one another? Sure. So one of the things that I'm trying to do in my broader research is, is bring the conversation on prisons and prisoners in Iran to include all prisoners, right? We've gotten a lot of really brilliant work out of Iran and out of the Middle East more broadly on political prisoners, um, in particular, those whom we call political prisoners, folks who are part of political parties who are incarcerated for essentially thought crimes or actions against the state that are politi political, overtly political in nature. But uh, sort of influenced by a whole world of brilliant um, African-American uh, activists, scholars, folks like Angela Davis, uh, Mariam Kaba, uh, there's the names go on and on. I started thinking about, well, you know, the, the carceral rate in Iran jumps right at the same moment that it jumps in uh, the United States. And it's not only these two places. There's a similar jump in Brazil in the early 80s. There's a similar jump um, in some East Asian countries. So I was trying to think of a lot of the work on Iran really thinks, OK, well, what happens in 1980, 81, 82? Of course, that's right after the revolution. That's clearly... Um, why anything is happening, right? But then there's clearly more to it, right? If several states are thinking about engaging in a war on drugs at the same time, that's also part of a kind of global zeitgeist, right? But in the Iranian case, it's very clearly linked in the early part of the uh, establishment of the Islamic revolution towards a revolutionary promise of eradicating um, sin, vice, the sort of the problems that arise from a improperly um, moral public, uh, sort of westernized public. So you have revolutionary leaders saying things like, well, these, you know, there's mass arrests and mass incarceration and even mass executions of drug users um, or on, on folks who are held on uh, drug charges. And there we're being told, Iranians were being told in that era that this is part of the a sort of cleansing, right? A cleansing that's going to eradicate these things from the face of the country. Um, that did not happen. Uh, drug use and drug um, addiction rates have only soared uh, exponentially in the last uh, several decades. And, and actually, Nora, to your earlier question about why we saw these medical furloughs, I think part of it is that we actually see in the Islamic Republic since the late 90s and into the 2000s a little bit of a shift in thinking uh, on, on drug use, where there is more of an openness towards essentially what would be public health um, and, and, and um, uh, sort of healthcare responses towards the drug epidemic in Iran, that is, you can't just carceralize your responses, right? So there are even quite conservative members of the government saying things like, we need to decriminalize certain kinds of drug use. Um, we need to um, legalize uh, sort of, you need to actually control um, these these um, substances in ways that can help people not suffer addiction. So there's much more of an awareness in the last really two decades that addiction is a disease. It's, a, it's not just something that is an issue of sin and vice, right? But that early 80s moment, that 80s and 90s moment was very much a kind of politicization of drug use around the revolutionary rhetoric of the state, that the state was capable, that Islam itself and Islamic revolution was capable of eradicating the problem of, of drug use in the country. Um, and that, yeah, go ahead, Pesam, sorry. And it's also, I mean, if you look at the early 80s uh, and on to the 1990s, it was a time that uh, much of the globe or several countries were moving in a conservative direction in various ways, whether it's Thatcherism, uh, economics, and the onset and the maturation of neoliberal policies. 
that actually produced much higher rates of incarceration. In Iran, of course, you had the revolution. You also had a war in which uh, critics had to be silenced or, or basically the, the state had to uh, act in a certain manner to, uh, to deter uh, critique and, and subversion. So a lot of this uh, stuff actually is important as far as, as, far as um, uh, this question of uh, incarceration. But I, I also wanted to ask you if, uh, I mean, uh, so, so I'm not sure if you're able to answer it because it, it's, it's, uh, uh, it, it might be also a technical question. The rate of, of spreading of any sort of uh, disease in prisons must be exponentially higher than anywhere else because of the proximity. Is this something that, that, that you can speak to? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So if you look at the, there's actually, um, the World Health Organization has an entire sort of component of its work is, 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 is working on um, rates of disease spread in incarcerated, in carceral spaces and, and um, what folks need to do to try to um, eliminate certain dangers. Um, and public health uh, officials and prison advocates in Iran have worked on some of these things, I mean, in piecemeal ways and against sometimes quite hostile conditions. Um, but part of the point that I was trying to argue in my, in my piece is that there are certainly ways that you can make, if you insist on having uh, sort of the mo uh, modern prison system like the one that we have, there are certainly ways that you can um, alleviate some forms of uh, uh, the spread of disease or, or human suffering, right? But you cannot eradicate those things because the prison itself is a petri dish for disease. Um, it is a perfect space. I mean, and not just prisons, but all sorts of, all of the kinds of carceral spaces that we live with, refugee camps, internment camps, carceral sites, they are by definition um, and irrevocably spaces where disease spreads, right? And so again, the rates of, for instance, across the board in every part of the world, rates of, of both diseases that we think of as relatively taken care of in the, in the, in, for the most part, and diseases that we are, that are, we're in sort of panic pandemic mode over, uh, just ravage carceral pop, incarcerated populations and refugee populations and encamped populations, right? Because there is no way to socially separate. There is no way to quarantine. There is no, there's not enough access to medicine. So the, by definition, by incarcerating large groups of people, you are damning them to dying at much, much higher rates of both preventable uh, and, and, and sort of, and sort of and, new diseases. And there's also a lot less interest among authorities to invest in discipline, in actually imposing discipline. Uh, because the, the the costs are not as high. I mean, of course, there are attempts, but this is this is something that I've noticed. Uh, I mean, as you know, we're all you know uh, at home, and I've been watching a lot of a lot more than I should uh, of network television, and I haven't seen one serious report on uh, on these spaces, uh, which which is again a function of the lack of investment and interest in in, in those spaces, not just on uh, uh, major network televisions, but in general, uh, even in public discussions. Even uh, online, I have not uh, heard or read much at all about about this uh, this question. Yeah, and and in, I'll take it back to you know the sort of some of the points I was trying to make in the piece, which is that those who are caught in the dragnets of these wars on drugs in the '80s, for example, the Iranian one, 
Um, those are those are political decisions by states, right? That we're going to undertake this kind of mass uh, process of of arrest and uh, criminalization and incarceration, right? And those are those to begin with are drawn from populations of socially vulnerable peoples, right? It's overwhelmingly poorer folks, people from socially marginalized communities. In Iran, again, there are refugee populations that are badly affected by by the carceral state, and obviously also. Um, those who are politically active in the Iranian case become very, are a vulnerable population, right? Um, so that means that those populations, again, they're facing a kind of double uh, vulnerable uh, marginalization in the first place in being brought into the carceral system and in the second place by being sort of forgotten when when a, a disease ravages that system. Now, Iran is, has been quite proactive about furloughing um, Incarcerated peoples, but that hasn't isn't the case for every single epidemic. That hasn't been the case necessarily in 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 these mass numbers for every disease that affects people. So you have people dying of preventable or getting quite ill from preventable illnesses um, who are already parts of poorer or marginalized communities. And that's I think what we see across the board. Uh, I'll ask this and then I'll I'll, I'll yield to Nora. So in your article, you talked about uh, the actual uh, or the reported deaths of several of uh, the prisoners during that attempt to escape and so on. But the authorities, in, uh, in your article, you mentioned that they uh, reported that only one person was killed and one prisoner was killed and one was injured. It, do these sorts of things, uh, and, and this is something we also asked uh, our other uh, friends a couple of days ago when we talked to them about Iran, is this uh, sort of discourse, does it reflect the insecurity of the, uh, of the government, the, the, uh, the, the officials uh, regarding this, this whole issue, and, and, and do people in Iran, as far as you can probably tell, more than, more than we can, uh, do they, they, they catch that, and is there a backlash? regarding that covering up or that sort of, you know, uh, that discourse of, of, of camouflaging uh, some of the uh, inconsistencies and shortcomings? Yeah, I think absolutely. I think absolutely there is real, there is on the part of the populace, a real skepticism about any number that they're hearing from the government right now, whatever that might be, whether it's specifically corona-related deaths, corona infections, or for those paying attention to these um, uh, uh, prison uprisings and escapes, um, the numbers that are coming out of that. Because if I, you know, just talking to people, um, sort of talking to folks who in Iran who are looking at, uh, who are, know about um, the sort of carceral situation or just looking at social media, there was rampant speculation that there was a much, much broader outbreak and many, many more deaths. And, and for me as a researcher, it'll be, it'll probably take some time to actually figure out that, you know, whether, you know, I, I'm not. I'm quite skeptical about the government's numbers, but the the social media numbers are also probably inaccurate at this point. And so it'll probably take some time for us to have a sense of what really happened on those days. But there's absolutely a skepticism among most sort of ordinary Iranians about what they're hearing from their government, even those who are actually, you know, quite ne not necessarily opponents of the regime broadly, because they're worried for their own health. You know, there's there's clearly something more going on. Than people are hearing, you know, the it's very very clear from when Corona was first um, there was first announcements of deaths of, of Corona related deaths in Guam in mid February to now that there's just been a lot more happening that we haven't heard uh, the numbers on. 
the so there's real skepticism and on the other hand on the, on the part of the government i think um you know from what i can see there's real worry as well they're trying to minimize um and they're trying to portray things as under control ruhani said again uh just uh yesterday that he anticipates that things will be better by the time the new year's holiday is over on april 3rd by easter <laughs> yeah, yeah same messaging it's very similar messaging like once this holiday wraps up we think that people will you know so there's this kind of constant messaging about things um you know being better than than they seem um and i think that you know the Iranian government is dealing with with real mass skepticism in the wake of the no november protests and the wake of the downed airliner of the of the airplane in the wake of the corona crisis but also just a crushing economic situation which is a powder keg um, and which will only become worse and worse as corona-related sort of quarantining and social distancing um, uh, uh, takes further further root. Because Golnar, let me inter let me um, uh, sorry, finish your thought. No, just and I was just going to also mention the escal escalating sanctions being the the third part of the equation there. But um, I wanted to just as we wrap up to take it mm -hmm. back to the global scope that you also intimate um, and allude to in the article, which is about the prisoner revolts. You've mentioned already three in Iran um, in several, uh, at least three provinces, but you also refer to revolts in Italy and elsewhere in your article. So can you walk us through that as we think about this on the global scale um, and thinking about you know, a, a, a space that is out of sight, out of mind for most of uh, you know, the general population? And, and uh, before, before you start, sorry, and as you do that, if, if, if feel free to so, sort of end with, with any last thoughts you have so that we, we don't, we don't uh, like, because we are so tempted, we were talking about this article before we spoke with you, so we don't get tempted ourselves to sort of keep asking so that you can wrap up yeah. after you answer. I will do my best, I will do my best. Um, but yeah, so, you know, of course I know the Iranian situation and the Iranian context better than the Italian or the, the other, other spaces where they seem to have been uprisings or revolts or unrest or incidents or whatever. Um, we know of, I know of um, several, in fact, tw uh, uh, protests in over 25 prisons in Italy, um, seemingly spreading like wildcat style. Um, having to do both with, again, both with fears of corona and also just the uh, sort of top-down brutal imposition of these draconian measures and um, especially the sort of curtailing of all visitation rights and all, you know, any kind of contact to the outside world because that is in itself terrifying even in, in non-corona situations. So there's been in, uh, several sort of protests in Italy and the Italian, the uh, right-wing Italian government has promised uh, an iron boot response that has been their their own language and they've been very very slow to release incarcerated folks they've released a couple thousand um but there's been calls for more there was a big uh protest in bogota colombia um there's been um some signs of unrest in other places as well um but it's hard to link it's hard to know if exactly you know because um the governments are sort of suppressing information about them and it's hard to know exactly what's on the prisoners minds what's on the uh, the people on the inside's minds when they're when they're um, protesting because even in our normal circumstances there's many many prison protests that we don't hear about um, and there are of course in the u.s context there's been several hunger strikes in in um, both in ice detention camps and in um, uh, sort of ordinary de uh, detention uh, situations so there's a wide range of different um, strategies 
that that incarcerated folks are using and 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 folks who are being held in encampments are using to try to bring public attention to their to their plight which is why in the article the really the big takeaway for the article for me and a big takeaway for me in the book that I'm working on more broadly is that we really need to expand especially those of us who think about and work on middle east context we really need to expand what we mean when we talk about political prisoners there's clearly those and in the Iranian context clearly there are many hundreds and thousands of people who are arrested for their political ideas and that we should be using our every last breath to fight for for those folks but at the same time even those on you know, let's say you're arrested on drug charges or sex work charges, or you're a refugee, or these are all part of a long-standing process of political decisions, political institution building, and processes in which certain people are rendered vulnerable or rendered disposable, and others are rendered more valuable, right? So it, it is my, it is my um, position that we have to think about all of these as political prisoners in a, in a certain way, or to at least start thinking about how we can connect these different um, movements. There shouldn't be sort of public health movements over here fighting for a few rights of some prisoners and others. There's got to be a way to kind of connect these conversations um, because we have to sort of think about the ways in which just ordinary folks who are captured in the New York City dragnet and are at Rikers are themselves uh, the victims of political decisions and political processes. So in the U.S. we know that these are um, uh, poor people and people of color, particularly African-Americans, Latinos, and uh, indigenous folks. And of course, that's also the case uh, in the Iranian context, where uh, we've seen these uprisings in these provincial um, areas. Uh, there was just an uprising two days ago in Tabriz with a lot of um, Kurdish prisoners in particular. So again, socially vulnerable people um, are often caught in these in these, in these these carceral systems. And we have to think about that as a broader political project and then focus our politics against it, right? If that is a political project, then our own political project has to think expansively about these links. Thank you so much, Golnar. Uh, Free it all. We could actually <laughs> uh, exactly. go on and go, we can actually go on and on, but uh, if there's anything else you or Nura would like to say before we uh, uh, wrap up, and I'm sure we will speak again. Yes, uh, just thank you guys both for giving me the opportunity to come on here and talk to you today. It's nice to see your faces uh, in these quarantine times. Same here, same And we'll here. be in touch. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much, Gunnar. Take care. Talk, talk to you soon. Freedom all. Take care.